Welcome to Income for Baby Boomers. If you want to learn about exciting new businesses each week from other boomers who speak your language and have started a unique and profitable business from home, you have come to the right place. For those who would like to try some of these low investment opportunities, stay tuned. We'll help you get started in your own profitable adventure. Now with your host and entrepreneur, Ken Queen. I'd like to welcome Edward Massey, writer, consultant. Edward, how you doing? I'm doing fine today. Thanks a lot. Super. Do, do you want me to call you Ed? Is that fine? It's fine. Ed or Edward is fine. No problem. Okay. I, I go by right. Edward as a writer. Okay. Okay. Oh, Ed, just to go back in time a little bit so we get an idea of how an entrepreneur thinks, because that's what my, my uh, listeners need to learn. What will you have? You had uh, a uh, lemonade stand at five years old, or when did it all start? Well, it's uh, it's not far off that. Um, the fact is, I was I was raised in Utah in a pretty poor family that was sort of semi-literate, and as it turns out, I had a couple of high school teachers who grabbed me by the ears and and said, "You're smart, but you're illiterate." So in the process of doing that, they encouraged me to um, apply for a program called American Field Service. It was the first year they were sending students to Europe for school. So I didn't know whether or not I wanted to do that versus play football. And somebody said, well, look, if, you, if that's the question, then just come back and take your senior year in high school again and play football. Well, I knew I didn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I applied. I I became one of 17 students in the U.S. who went to Germany for school. And on the way, I was in the boat, and a fellow was filling out an application, sitting at a table, filling out an application. I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm applying to Yale. Oh, I heard of that place. How do you do that? And anyway, I went to Yale. Then I went to school for a long time, went to the University of Munich Law School, Harvard Business School, went to work for McKinsey and Company, and decided that I wanted to write. So I was living in Paris at the time and left and moved to Farmington, New Mexico to write. And what what year was that? That year was 1974-75. Okay, so it was a while, a while back. Okay. Yep. So what happened was I got out there and I had no job. <laughs> I had no way of making money from writing. I still don't, as a matter of fact. And I sort of looked around the town, and there wasn't any apartment housing. I said, oh, gee, I know how to do that. That financing large-scale projects is what I'd done at McKinsey. So I started developing apartment buildings and real estate and ultimately had a couple of referrals and moved back to New York, and I was often running in the business of trying to support myself. And so that's, that's kind of what you said. It was a little bit like a lemonade stand at a young age, it's just that I was kind of on a quest for life and ended up in in the need of, you know, finding a job that would take care of me. Fantastic. So you were a consultant to the real estate field, is that what would you would say? Well, or, or did you work for a company? Yeah, no, I would say that as a consultant, I was a consultant. I, I did primarily financial planning um, and financing projects, and then ultimately some strategy consulting for companies in real estate. Then I went out and did my own real estate business. I developed a 50-unit apartment building and a small office building and 
Then when I became involved in the healthcare business, that really started kind of like real estate because what I started with was the creation of ambulatory care centers around hospitals to bring doctors together in buildings around hospitals. And mm, probably a pretty rich market, a good market. Yeah, that was a very interesting and, and very nice market. I, I will I will tell you, um, in the sake of um, full disclosure, that I was a founding partner with another partner of a very renowned, well-known healthcare consulting firm, American Practice Management, APM. But the fact is that I sold to my partner at a very early stage, and he's the one that made it great. <laughs> Not, he yeah, but was you, smart enough to buy me out, and I was dumb enough to sell. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, we, we're not perfect. We don't make, right. you know, we make mistakes. <laughs> so at what point did were you able to start doing writing, uh, and, and that was supporting your lifestyle? Is that more recent? Well, yeah, um, it was yeah more more recent now, uh, 14 years ago. But yes, I I I have to admit I just continued to work and do projects and and stay involved in the business world. But it was kind of it was fear. I mean, I I didn't think I could support myself. I I didn't dare not support myself, and so mm -hmm. I kept working and kept talking about writing until. Um, August of 2001, when my wife bought a beautiful black-bound volume of blank white pages and handed it to me and said, put up or shut up. And so I started writing, and I, I, I have to admit that, that what I do now and what I've done since then is I have I've sacrificed a lot to be able to write, but I do have to pay attention to doing enough work to keep the mortgage paid. Okay, so the 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 writing is not fully supporting your lifestyle, is what you're no, saying? No, my writing is not fully supporting my lifestyle. Um, no, I still have to keep writing. I've had two books published. I've got a third one out to a publisher, and I'm just about midway through the second draft of my fourth one. And I'll just keep going, and someday maybe I'll turn out to be good enough to support my lifestyle, and I hope so. And what I really hope well, is that people read them. Now, when you say you're doing consulting and stuff on the side along with this, right? Yeah. What you're doing? Yeah. Uh, do you consult uh, for writing books in the, this business, or is consulting more in the real estate? And, yeah, and no. <laughs> Actually, it's two things. One, I do consulting to a law firm on securities litigation, and so I work with them primarily on the development of private investor clientele. It's a plaintiff side law firm. So the fact is that nobody, I mean, you, you can't induce anybody to sue. That isn't the way the world works. It just so happens right. that once in a while you need to sue. So the question is, since you never want that to be part of your life, how do you develop a relationship so that if it is ever part of your life, you know who to turn to? And so I, right. I work with that firm to try to help them develop relationships that may never ever be used, but are there if they need to be used. And then the other thing, my company for the past, well, since I left the last job I left, which was 2007, um, is NextGenCo's, and I've been really focused on, originally that company was focused on transferring wealth to the next generation through investment, as, as opposed to estate planning, but by virtue of having the next generation be the investor and create something valuable and 
they'd earn the wealth that gets transferred. That came asunder a bit with the financial crisis of 2009. So what I've really been focused on mostly, and, and I'm quite excited about it because it relates to my writing, is the concept of using family stories and family history and family thoughts, whatever they are, to mm-hmm. pass the values across generations. So my last book, Every Soul is Free, is really what started that because it takes place in 1948 over the course of 12 hours. But in reading the book, you end up with a 100 years of family and mountain and pioneer history. So the whole notion of how do you transfer values across generations is fascinating to me. You know, take a, a firm that wants to manage the wealth of, of wealthy families and they know that they need to have a way of helping the family solve the problem of passing it on to the next generation. I mean, the fact is that 70% of inherited wealth is dissipated by the second generation. 90% of inherited wealth is dissipated by the third generation. So it's a monumentally difficult task. And what I am trying to say is the way to approach that task is to approach it by talking about something that is not money. All right. So instead of saying, well, the way you do this is you set up a trust and you found it with $7 million and you get, et cetera, that's not at all what it's about. What it's about is how do you build values and how do you build a value system that is really representative of what your family stands for. So that's what I'm doing as a means of trying to support my writing career. I've got you. One way be to say, okay, we're going to make sure this lasts 20 years, so we're only going to let you take out 100000 a year for the next 20 years or 200000 or whatever and tie it up somewhat, somehow that they just get the interest off of the investments or something rather than the lump sum knowing that uh, 70% are going to blow it. Yeah. Well, that is exactly the traditional way. And I, and I certainly agree with the math and I understand it works there. What I'm trying to say is that what you want to do is you want to communicate to your 20-year-old son Mm -hmm. that when you were 20, you were full of energy and you were starting and it took 10 or 15 years of hard work to get what he now sees as his right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's really important for him to understand what that work was and why it was done and where it came from and to talk to you about it so that he has a real sense of, of what went on in the family that created that wealth and why it's important to preserve it. Mm -hmm. So that the concept is that he's going to work for 20 years. He may fail and lose the money. I'm not as concerned about that as I am concerned about the commitment to really do, do something that has lasting value. And that's what I'm saying is, is built. The the only thing is though, if he's not an entrepreneur, you know what I mean? If he doesn't have the mindset to run a business or won't even want to run a business, you know, it's hard to train someone to become an entrepreneur if that's not in their character or their desires, I guess. I just don't know how you'd get around that part. Yeah, no, I, I, I certainly agree with that. And by the way, I don't think that everybody needs to be an entrepreneur as, as I'm trying to be a living example myself. I mean, I think it's a higher calling to be a writer. I just happen to be an entrepreneur so that I can support my higher calling. But yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think there is a very real question about how do you communicate with that next generation. 
give you a, give you a really important tangible example. Henry Morrison Flagler, who was the partner that really created um, a thing called the Standard Trust. The original company was called the Rockefeller uh, mm-hmm. Flagler Andrews Refining Partnership. He had a son named Henry Morrison Flagler who created the New York Philharmonic. But Henry Flagler, the founder, basically disinherited that son because he didn't go into the business. Well, mm-hmm. gee, you know, the New York Philharmonic is not a shabby accomplishment. No kidding. <laughs> so my point is that, you know, one has to also recognize that you need to value what the next generation wants. You just just need to re- kind of work through where does it fit in the value system of the family. Oh, I think it's a great uh, thing to try to do, to put that together. I think it's... Uh, Wonderful. Uh, I didn't realize that 90% by the third generation lost it all. <laughs> I knew it was up there, but I didn't realize it yeah. was quite that bad. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, yeah, you know, someday grab your Forbes 400 and go through it and just make a list of how many of them are on there by inheritance. It was just published not too long ago. Uh, the number is is pretty small. I mean, I, I'm not yeah. sure that it's I believe that. that it's 40, but it's a small number. Right. So it might be like five percent of the. Well, it might be. It might even be ten percent of the four hundred. But but the fact is that a a very very large number of the wealthiest people around that you come to your mind right now they they made the money. It's all first generation money. Look at Buffett. Mm -hmm. Look at Gates. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's that's the issue that is really quite profound. Oh, this is a great subject area. Uh, let me just go over to your consulting business for a minute, if I could. Let's take someone like our listeners. Let's say they're, we've got someone who's 60, 65. He's just retiring. He was uh, quite advanced in, uh, let's say, uh, taxation, accountant and a specialist in taxation. But he worked for someone all his life. And now he, they're laying him off because he's whatever, you know, new ownership and all the reasons, you know, Aaron. There's a million reasons, his age and what have you. Now he wants to use his expertise. He loves baseball on the side. That's really a passionate thing for him. But uh, if he has to live on his pension, he's going to be eating dog food, so he doesn't want to do that. So he's got to figure out how he's going to make this expertise of his as a consultant. What would you recommend he do? How would he follow in your footsteps? (laughs) (laughs) Well, did you mention baseball because you know I have a bit of baseball in my background? No, I only said it because oh, okay. uh, a, lot, a lot of these people have a, a side interest, and a lot of them have baseball, and right. so I just threw that in. That's all. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that um, fundamentally consulting is a business of, of dealing with people. So so the, the, the real way to get that started, I think, is to get in the path of the kinds of people that you want to work with. Okay. As you know, in consulting. By the way, you have to take a lot of rejection. There's no, there's no question that that mostly what you're doing is you're searching for yes. And I make that right. point specifically because it, you, you know, you can either choose to hear the no, no's or you can ignore the no's. And and so if you just remember you're searching for yes, it's a little bit easier to ignore the no's. Okay, great. I mean, I think. I guess the other point I'm thinking here is is that you're just sorting too, though, right? Because you're going to pick what you want too. You're going to get rid of the duds from your side. You you've got a choice, a say in the matter too. So, 
really you're you're going to go through 100 people and say, oh, no, you're not the one, you're not the one, and you are the one. Well, you know, that's an interesting point. I, I, I have a kind of a, um, I, I have a slightly different point of view on that. I think entrepreneurs have to be very willing to run up blind alleys. So I personally don't set out to do a lot of sorting. I was a, I was a partner in a, a well-known and very successful venture capital firm, and I learned an enormous amount. One of the things I learned that they taught me was that the reason their deal flow was so good was that they understood the answer is always yes until it's no. So they didn't start out by making people aware of the fact that they were selecting and sorting and being very, very discerning about who got to them. They were encouraging everybody. Okay. And then they get to a point where this isn't a deal for us, it's no. But they never got to the no too quickly. And so my point is, if somebody's starting out in business and he's trying to become a consultant, especially after a, a job, because a job has a has a world that tends to give you what you do as opposed to ask you to find what you do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that a person has to be a little bit willing to run up blind alleys and what that means is not to chide himself because he runs up blind alleys. I mean, I spend a lot of time with things that turn out to be nothing. I happen to kind of be kind of a curious fellow. So, so you, you, you need to talk to my wife because <laughs> 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 she's thinking I've been running up too many of them. <laughs> well, I understand that. I understand that. And I will acknowledge that wives tend to run up a lot fewer blind alleys than husbands. <laughs> But, uh, okay, so uh, in other words, you can do the sorting later, take everyone right now, and then the ones that aren't making you money in the end, you can say, okay, I'm I'm taking the top 20% of well, you know, the other you know, or I think even your point about making you money in the end, I mean, I think part of the process that is it sorts itself out by itself, I mean, before you even have the chance for them not to be making you any money, they fall by the wayside. I mean, you're looking for you know, the good opportunity. And, and the fact is that if you're going to be a consultant in that area, kind of tax consulting or financial planning, you know, I mean, ultimately you'll end up with a few clients who rely on you and, and will represent a substantial amount of your income. I mean, one of the terrifying aspects of my life today is that, you know, I have a one very large client they're very good because the work I do, they seem to want me to continue to do. Mm-hmm. What I do is I either do my writing or I do the consulting that helps them, and I don't go out and do a lot of new business generation. So, you know, I can wake up in the middle of the night and say, oh, my mm. God, what happens if when I go to the office today they say, it's over? There's everything in a box over there for you. That's right. Pretty scary. <laughs> so you don't like this idea you have all your eggs in one basket here, but it is what it is at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, to not have all your eggs in one basket takes an enormous amount of energy. And I'm not suggesting that anybody should avoid that or not do it. I'm just saying that I, I make the choice to take that risk because it really takes a lot of energy to write every day. Uh, a friend of mine, he has a plastic company up north, and he said that uh, they would not allow any one of their customers to go past, I think it was 22% of their production. He says, because otherwise they're going to be telling me what to do. 
Well, no, that makes a tremendous amount of sense. And by the way, apropos of your example of the accounting guy, I mean, if you filed, if you had a public company and you filed a proxy statement with a public company, the SEC requires you to deal with the subject of concentration. I think it might be 10%. You have to identify by name any customer who represents more than 10% of your sales. To make sure you're not forming some kind of monopoly or something. Well, not so much a monopoly, but because of just what you mentioned, the risk. I mean, there is risk. a risk that if that yeah, sales go away, all of a sudden you wouldn't be profitable. Okay, so here's this uh, accountant taxation guy. What would be the first step? He, he's retired last week, and what should he do? Let's just for a second pursue that idea that he likes baseball. In fact, you can find the name of every agent in baseball online, and you can write to them. I have done that. You can write to them, and you can say, you know, I'm looking to develop a uh, practice as a accountant and financial analyst for baseball players. What do you recommend? Now, the chances are that you'll get no answer, or you'll get nowhere, but my point is you can do tangible things that are consistent with what it is you want to achieve. Oh, I see. Okay, so tie in your love for baseball into the taxation. Yeah, yeah. Just try to make it as tangible as you can and and, and pursue it and see if that'll work for you. And the other thing is that if you live in a town that has a minor league baseball team, you know, get out to the minor league baseball team and talk to the people who actually operate the minor league baseball team and see if there's anything that you can do with them. Maybe, maybe it'll be with their minor league team, or maybe they'll be able to tell you kids who are rising stars that maybe you want to talk to. So uh, I live in the Clearwater, Tampa Bay area. Well, that's a slight problem because it's kind of because of the spring training. It's hard for minor league baseball to be as flourishing in Florida as it is in other areas. But there's certainly a lot of baseball down there. <laughs> but the point being here is, is that you're going to be handling maybe star baseball players who your is your favorite pastime uh, to be part of your full-time yeah, maybe, work. Yeah, maybe. I mean, if that's what you want to do, go out and find out if it's possible. I mean, you need to acknowledge that there are another hundred people who have the same idea, but that's probably the same about anything fun in life. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to be the only one. Right. If you're the only one, there's probably nothing there. Okay, so, uh, but let's say he... Okay, that's one avenue. What else would you what would you do online, or what would you recommend he do to phone what organizations, or how would he get this thing off the ground for his consulting? Well, you know, the other thing is that obviously he's in an area where the people who need the help probably are people who have money. So you know, he could visit banks and talk to people in the banks and find out if they have any leads for him. So talk to bank managers and assistant yeah. managers, that's right. Assistant managers, account people, whatever people he knows, uh, find out if they have any leads. And, and um, I don't know that I personally believe the online strategy works too well unless people have some pretty special skills. I mean, if, for example, if your hypothetical retiree had a real theory about what people should do, in some way or another, then I think he could clearly gain access online, create his own blog, and 
and then see if the world would recognize his theory. But you know, beyond that, I don't think there's I, I don't think there's a, a place that you can sort of go to Google and say potential clients for my new okay. tax consulting business. <laughs> All right. Okay. So uh, you know, you wouldn't be recommending uh, LinkedIn or anything in particular. Well, you know, everybody everybody recommends that. I don't. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. Does it work? <laughs> I I have no idea. I I just don't want to be a luddite and and speak against it. I just don't know that it has any impact at all in terms of generating leads. It may have an impact in terms of generating people to talk to. What I am saying and what I would underscore is that all of these opportunities are created by a real human interaction. You have to be mm-hmm. available to let lightning strike. Okay, so any local businesses that he already knows is a good start and any banks he's already got a, uh, his accounts at Absolutely. and so on, so he's got yes, some personal yeah. personal touch there. Is there anything else that would you recommend he does a mailing or any 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 other approach that you would think? Well, uh, you know, that's a very good idea. A mailing is a very good idea. The, the real issue is what list? How does he find out who to mail to? That, that's a good idea. Depending upon what he did with the firm he worked for before he retired, it may well be appropriate for him to take everybody in his Rolodex and send them a little letter saying, I've retired now, and I'm looking to build on the great skills and personal relationships I had. So if there's any ideas you have or anything I can do for you, just let me know. That could could be a great idea. All right. Okay, like I have a neighbor just retired uh, the end of last month, and he specializes in making plastic bottles, the molds for them. Like, you know, Coke will bring out a new bottle, and they'll make the design for it and all that. And uh, he's saying, you know, I don't don't have a pile of money here, so I need to start making something on the side. I have a, you know, I have a, a pension, but I don't want to. I want to live like I used to, not what I might have to. Right, right. <laughs> so he's trying to think. Okay, what am I going to do? So the first thing he should do would be sending a letter to to all his suppliers and all his connections. Is that what you're re- probably recommending and saying? I'm available for consulting. Well, yeah, I mean, if that's what he does, I, you know, there, there are two things there, because I, I know a teensy bit about that business. He, you know, is he a, if he's a mold maker, he could say he's available to create molds, or if he's a designer, to design them or whatever. But, yeah, I mean, whatever it is that he did before he retired, he and, and then on top of that, if he had some theories about how to do it better so that he could actually have a little hook. And that same thing goes for the accountant. If he, if the tax accountant had a hook there that he figured out, uh, here's another example. I met this accountant at the swimming pool at one of the resorts here a while back, and uh, he said, I specialize in uh, accounting for agriculture. Just farmers, that's all I deal with. He says, I'm miles ahead of anyone in the country. And he, and I, he says, like, I work 80 hours a week and stuff. And I said, well, why don't you try to put something together nationwide with your knowledge and maybe create some courses and what have you and try to figure out how to cash in rather than just in the one or two states you're working, you could do something nationally. But in his case, he didn't want to He said, oh, no, I haven't got time for that. 
Well, yeah, no, but he, you bring he, up, you, but you know, you raise a very good point. Again, it depends. People have to look deeply into what their specialty is. An accountant who specializes in agriculture and is miles ahead of anybody else in the country. Oh, according to him. I understand. No, 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 no. But what I'm trying to get to is he ought to do extensive research in private equity and venture capital firms that are focusing on investing in agriculture because uh, they need him. And there may uh, only be a dozen of them in the country, but it can become so targeted, so pinpointed. He's got a rifle shot for every one of them, and he can tell them, look, have me in your office. You can ask me any question. I, I know the answer. I'm, I'm better than anybody you've got. Now, he may not I've been there and done it. <laughs> yeah. But the point is that there's a very interesting thing because, you know, agriculture is a is a business that has a lot of money behind it. So mm -hmm. if you yeah. are better than anybody else, then maybe you've got a way to, to mobilize people. But I see how he could have expanded. That's great. Okay. So uh, firms that are investing in that area. Yeah, okay. yeah exactly. Let's take our folks here. They're retiring, and they'd like, they'd like to write a book now. They'd like to follow in your footsteps in the book area. What would be the first thing uh, that you would recommend they do? The first thing I'd recommend they do is sit down and write. Is this right and right? Yeah. My, okay. my little story about my wife handing me that black book, not only is it absolutely true, it also is a story. The first day was just harder than hell. It took me, I, I stayed at it for 15 minutes before it got too painful to stay at it. But, you know, I sat down every day and... Now, it wasn't two months that I was able to write two hours a day, and I, I write two to four hours a day every day of the week except mostly on Tuesdays because I have a client commitment that takes me out of town. But other than that, I do. I mean, you know, every day. So you just get better at doing the process. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I just, you know, I just sit down and write, and, and so the first thing to do is sit down and write, and it will initially be I, I believe it will initially be very painful. I will tell you right now, it is the best part of my day right now because <laughs> I'm in a cocoon. I am just in there and I'm doing my writing. And then when I get finished with my two to four hours, I got to go out and deal with the real world. And that's not as pleasant. But, <laughs> but it, yeah, I've got you. <laughs> got you. Know, it went from real torture to real pleasure. Yeah, the greatest pleasure I have. I, I probably spend two hours every morning writing myself. <laughs> so, yeah, well, but I, I've done nothing with it. But I mean, I got piles and piles of things here in paper. <laughs> yeah, well, that 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 also counts. I mean, especially if if whatever you're doing. I just happen to have decided that I am totally focused on writing novels. So mm -hmm. I mean, I have I've published a few short stories, but they were all in the service of marketing my second novel, the one that was published last year. And I, I haven't separately tried to write and publish short stories. And so far, I haven't written any nonfiction, although, as I was telling you, I'm beginning to really work harder on this question of transferring values by family stories. So I, I might end up doing some nonfiction, but so far, all I do is, is novels. And probably a big strength would be the nonfiction for you because of your background. Well, I understand why you say that, and then my concern is that it gets to be a bit of a diversion, so I have not yet been willing to do it. 
I got you. You've picked something you really like, and you're going to stick with it. Right, for the exactly. Moment. And, exactly. And you probably, I mean, I don't know what you can make, but you probably could make a 100000 a year writing the fiction, but you could maybe make 300000 a year writing the nonfiction, right. but yep. might not be as happy. That's right. <laughs> no, I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah, I wouldn't be as happy, because what I would be is I would be back in that mode when I spent my time making money as opposed mm-hmm. to writing. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I I had a very nice entrepreneurial life and it worked fairly well, but I wasn't writing. Okay. Let's take you your writing experience again if we could here. Okay. Yeah. So you so this person spends 2 hours a day writing for a couple of months or whatever. At what point does he do something the next step? Well, um that gets to be a little bit of an analysis of one's own psyche. I think writing is the first and most important step, but I also think that getting involved with the writing community, either doing workshops or, you know, going to classes or whatever, I think that is also very, very useful. Um, Have you done that yourself? Yeah, I have. I've gone to, uh, I've actually, I've gone to several workshops. I've gone to a regional workshop called Westport Writers Workshop. I've gone out to the Iowa Writing Festival in Iowa. It's a very well-known one. I've I've attended the Sarah Lawrence Advanced Novel Workshop, um, the Gotham Writers Workshop in New York City. So you know, I've been I've been pretty humble about the need to get out and find out what real pros are saying. The one thing that I haven't done enough of, and that I wish I were able to do more of, is go to things like conferences and places where I meet people who are in the writing world because I'm, I'm really not from the writing world, so it's still kind of a, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit working with one hand tied behind my back from the point of view of marketing my work, but I haven't yet done that. But you've got a couple of college degrees there, so you know something about writing. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. No, I did go to school a lot, and 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 I have had a couple of book, books published, but so far it's not. You know, I'm not really in the mainstream, heavy hitting world of writers, and you know that'll come in the future if I'm good enough. I'll ultimately get there. Well, forgetting what they think, as far as what you think, do you think you're at your full swing when you start writing now, or do you still you feel you got ways to go, or do you think, hey, I'm there? As far as you're concerned, I'm. Totally into what I'm doing, and I'm there. Well, yeah, it's a that's a. I'm I'm going to give you two different answers. I'm feeling <laughs> like the work I'm doing right now is pretty good work, but I have in mind a couple of novels that I expect to do someday in the future that I actually don't think I'm good enough to do yet. So I think that I'm still in the process of writing my way through a learning curve. So although Mm -hmm. I think what I'm, and certainly the one, Every Soul is Free, won the League of Utah Writers Gold Quill Award. Other people seem to think it's pretty good. The best novel in 2014. So, you know, Mm -hmm. it it got a little bit of recognition, and I'm happy with it. But I'm also trying to, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, novels that take on bigger subjects and more subtlety, and, you know, all of that is work, more more skills to develop. Okay, so someone's trying to follow in your footsteps again here, so they've been writing for two or three months. What do they do now? They want to go to Kindle or or Amazon there and, and 
figure out how to publish a book at this point, or do they want to start looking for an editor, or what? what what's their next step? Two things. I think they have to get finished manuscript. So don't go looking for anything until you've got something finished that's good enough to show the world. Now, that could be short stories. As I said, I haven't been a writer of short stories, mm-hmm. but lots of people are. So a person could start out and, and decide they're going to write short stories, and maybe in six months or a year they could have two or three short stories that are good enough to start sending out. You know, if it's a novel, it may take them longer. I mean, I I got started in 2001 and had my first novel published in 2009. So, you know, it took a while. My second novel was published last year. So eight years for the first one, five years for the second one. So Now, when you say send out, you're going the traditional publisher route. You're not trying to do self-publishing. Is that well, what you're saying? Well, uh, there are a lot of things to say about that. When I say send out, I was really thinking about the concept of of short stories, but you can even publish your own self-published short stories now that they're on electronic media if you want to. And I also What would you recommend? What would you recommend for the listeners? What route to go? Well, my first novel I self-published and it was published with Amazon Create space, and as a matter of fact, it got to the quarterfinals in the Amazon Breakthrough Novel Award in 2009. But I decided that I really was determined to, um, you know, find a publisher and have my second novel published by a publisher. So that happened with Every Soul Is Free, and I probably won't go back to a uh, self-published format. But that doesn't mean that I have any judgment about it for anybody else. There are certainly a lot of people who do that well. And by the way, there's somebody that everybody should read named Hugh Howey, H-O-W-E-Y. Hugh Howey has is totally self-published, mm-hmm. probably makes more money than anybody else around in self-publishing, and mm-hmm. he has a great podcast with James Altucher uh, about being a self-published author. And in in that podcast, he makes the point that he didn't even have any sales, particularly, until his ninth piece was published. And the reason I use the word piece is that what what it was was a novella. So it wasn't a short story and it wasn't a novel. It was like a maybe 45,000 word novella. But it really was a breakthrough and, and now he's had enormous success. But Hugh Howey is somebody that people should look up because he really, he's very firm about it. He says the only fiction or nonfiction is he? Oh, his his has been his has been fiction. Okay. Yeah, he he wrote a series called Wool that's very successful, and he and he he just very straightforward. He said, you know, just write, forget about anything else, just write. And he's published a lot of stuff and made a lot of money. So everybody so, ought to read what he's got, and he's okay. readily accessible on the internet. So would you say that his uh, teaching would be? Write, get it out there, let everyone criticize it, and write the next one. Don't worry so much about making it perfect, but getting it done. Is that- well, I can't comment on his saying, don't worry so much about making it perfect. I can only say that he would say, once, you're, once you think it's ready to publish, publish it, and don't worry so much about having one of the big six publishers from New York pick it up. Just go ahead and go on to the next thing. 
but I think you got to try to make it as perfect as you can possibly make it within your right. skill and knowledge. And I think no. I worry about that. A lot of no. self-published stuff is just awful. That's one of yeah, the things true. that's bad about self-publishing is that some people don't have any standards. I don't. I think you should have standards. I mean, as I said, my first novel I self-published, but I I hired two editors. I mean, literally hired editors mm-hmm. to work on it before. I put it out there, so I knew it had been professionally edited with people who had really good credentials, and and so I, you know, I'm I'm actually. What do those editors run to to normally to edit a book? What kind of money did you have to pay them? You can get all sorts of stuff, ranging from three dollars a page to a book doctor for $15,000. I had the quote for a $15,000 book doctor, but I must admit I, I didn't take it. On the other hand, it probably, you know, even at $3 a page, it's probably at a minimum in the $1,000 to $3,500 range once you've got a, a draft that you want them to look at. Now, how many page uh, book are we talking about here for 1000 Oh, you know, if you've got something in the... 90,000 word range, so I'd say it's, you know, 300 to 400 pages at a minimum. So what you're saying is probably to get any recognition, maybe the first book, doing the Amazon creative space is a good way to do the first one, to get your feet wet or put your toes in the water, would you say? is that? Well, I wouldn't know. You're putting words in my mouth. That is one route. Everybody has to examine their own circumstances at, at a starting point, you know, Certainly, people who have expertise or a reputation or a name, they have a chance of getting a, an agent. They have a chance of getting it published. And, and by the way, the fact is that nonfiction tends to be sold before you write the book. Fiction tends to be sold after you write the book. So if what you're trying to do is write a book on agricultural accounting, you can very well write a um a query letter to a publisher or an agent and explain why agricultural accounting is very important and why you're good at it and what your viewpoint is and, and sell the book before you write it. That's a wonderful thing. I've never been able to do that, but that's really kind of the route. Well, you probably could do it in the, in your business field. Well, in my business field, I, I might be able to. And, and yeah. uh, as I said, the only problem is it would detract from writing fiction, and so I try to do that every day, so I haven't done it. So what would be some some final thoughts, do you think, that would that could help the folks ever? What do you, what what, would you in terms do? of writing? Yeah. In, in, in terms of writing yeah. and in terms of just, you know, they're retired and they're they're scared or whatever, and they're ready to do something, but they're not sure what to do, so it's just encouragement for... Yeah, well, look, I understand... I understand being retired and scared. I also understand the morning dreads, you know, those little bastards. <laughs> you're lying in bed, they jump on you, and Jesus, they're awful. So the so the first thought I have is get up and fight them. <laughs> okay. Get up in the morning and fight them. No, I think that um, I think I'm just going to focus on writing because I do think it's sure. easy for. I'm not okay. easy. I think there are a lot of things that people can do if they want to in their retirement years. And I'm going to just define retirement years as post-principal occupation. If you had a career okay. that went on for a long time and now that's over, then take on 
you know, whatever it is that's new that you want to do. But it does it does require a little bit of entrepreneurship in the sense that you need to go out and let the world know you're available. So the first thing is talk to people and tell them what you're doing. In the writing example, it's right. You know, follow your passion, find it is uh, what it is you want to write about. But right, if it's nonfiction, I think you got an avenue that you can pre-sell what you're writing. If it's fiction... Just have faith. Just keep writing. Find somebody to read it, but keep writing. So it's uh, it's a really you just have to get out there and do it. Like you say, get up every morning and fight. If some uh, I've I've noticed a lot of people they retire and they they just want to sit and stare at the wall, and watch TV. <laughs> or well, yeah, maybe no, you're absolutely right. Look, I'll tell you this is a somewhat personal example, but. Four years ago, I got diagnosed with atrial fibrillation, and I that, that pissed me off for one reason, because the whole cardiology community just said, you got to live with it. And as it turns out, I had a roommate who was a cardiothoracic surgeon, and I talked to him, and he said, you know, the problem is that men who get atrial fibrillation just sit down on their couch and vegetate. And I wasn't about to do that. So I hired a trainer who came every Friday and we did wind sprints, which is exactly the opposite thing from what you would normally do with atrial fibrillation. High speed bursts. Yeah. yeah. And ultimately, by the way, I got it reversed and I've been out of it. I've been in sinus rhythm for four years. But my point is, you know, you know, as you get older, you do have to make a concerted effort to stay active and stay involved. You really do, because everything about the world and your metabolism slows you down. Do you mind me asking your age again? No, no problem. I'm 73. 73. Good. Okay. Because it's just fantastic what you're doing and, you know, taking up a new practice of writing novels, you know, at your age and people thinking, oh, gee, I'm too late. I, I'm too old to write or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and just for the two minutes of of commercial, my website is edwardmasseybooks.com, yes. mm-hmm. and my books are available on Amazon. Every Soul is Free is the one that was just published, and Telluride Promise is the first one. And if they go on my website, there's actually a way they can ask me to autograph the book, etc. I'd be very happy to do that. They can also sign up so that every time I post a blog, it'll go to their email and they'll see it. Now, I'll also put that in the show notes, so Good. I will have, but keep in mind, some people never go there. They just listen to it, yeah. so no, that's, that's good that you Whatever you, you can it. do, I'd appreciate I'm looking for yeah. readers, and, Absolutely. you know, if anybody wanted me to actually come to a group and talk and do a little reading, that would be great fun. They don't even need to read the book. What I do is we agree on the subjects we want to illustrate, and I find little passages in the, my books here and there and just read them, there might be three sentences, and then we have a discussion. Good, so that yeah, you get into the deeper things that weren't in the book necessarily. Right, but... exactly. All right. Okay. Okay. Well, Edward, thank you uh, sincerely for taking all this time today to, to be with us, and I look forward to talking to you maybe in six months or a year well, and I, finding out that, your that's next great. And two Remember, books. you've got my email, so send me an email and keep me posted on how you're doing. Absolutely, and as soon as this goes up, I will let you know. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you, sir. Yep. Okay. Thank you for listening to Income for Baby Boomers with your host, Ken Queen. Helping boomers like you get a business started you can run from your own home. We interview owners of both online and offline businesses, but most importantly, ones that are run by baby boomers. Stay tuned next week for new and exciting businesses that you can start from your home. 
Until next time, have a profitable and blessed week. 